Welcome to Excited by the Science, brought to you by the experts at Edons. In this episode, fighting breast cancer using high-intensity focused ultrasound in combination with other treatments. For this spirited, in-depth talk, we welcome Dr. Ravi Patel from BMJ's Journal for Immunotherapy of Cancer, together with Daniel McGowan and Anthony Swain from Edons. Find more episodes and more excitement at www.edons.com slash excited hyphen science. Great to be here again for this uh, discussion. Uh, look, really, really interesting uh, choice of paper um, here. Um, you know, triple negative uh, breast cancer, which is, I believe, around 15 to 20% of all breast cancers, um, is, is really the worst uh, prognosis of, of different uh, breast cancer types. And there's an urgent need uh, in that field for, um, for treatment. So whilst we've seen some success in, in not only other breast cancers, but actually other types of tumors as well with targeted um, therapies and immunotherapies, uh, this, is, this is one area of breast cancer that I think has been uh, particularly challenging. And um, so, yeah, great, great to see some advances uh, made in this field, albeit in a, a sort of animal uh, model, um, but uh, yeah, really, really good to see advances in that area with some potential implications um, for, for the clinic. Um, as you mentioned, uh, I treat a little bit of breast cancer as a radiation oncologist, and definitely triple negative breast cancer is something that's a challenge. It affects younger women, and it's something on the clinical side we have uh, difficulty with. I thought this, uh, the thing I really uh, found interesting about this study is that they used uh, the mechanical uh, ablation, which is a little bit different than a lot of the, uh, when, when we have used ablation clinically, we typically think of thermal ablation. Uh, it could be, uh, uh, in this paper, they yeah. used uh, HIFU, which was an ultrasound-based thermal ablation. But uh, in the clinical space, we use radiofrequency and other invasive types of thermal ablation. But they took a little bit different approach where they used uh, mechanical disruption, so you don't necessarily cause coagulative necrosis. You're right, ablation um, therapy's been around for a little while, and you know we see cell death with necrosis, but tumors often grow back, right? And so actually using the mechanical disruption, the shear stress resulting from that acoustic cavitation with the mechanical uh, high-frequency uh, ultrasound, high-intensity, sorry, ultrasound, was um, a, a really innovative step. And then obviously they got good results with that alone, but combining it with the um, PD-1 uh, therapy as well, I, th I thought was was great. Well, I, I found this just quite interesting in general. I mean, the um, thermal um, high-intensity focus ultrasound um, seemed quite... Uh, it's mentioned that it's um, non-invasive or, let's say, minimally invasive, but anything that's going to be causing thermal stress and uh, damage through necrosis is um, going to be a little bit more invasive than something that is essentially backing off a little bit. So the mechanical aspect of this does seem to be the, um, the novel point of this paper, where they're using a slightly less intense version of the high-intensity focus ultrasound to cause acoustic cavitation, which seems to, rather than just forcefully smash open the cells and destroy them through necrosis, it seems to be encouraging a, a more apoptotic reaction from the cells and a way to open up the cells to um, bypass the immune checkpoint and to make the, the body just systemically more aware of, of the uh, tumor antigens. So I thought this is, rather than the kind of forceful destruction of the cells, focusing on the way to essentially just wake up the immune system to them, it seems like a really novel and innovative approach. Yeah, yeah. The one Very thing I found interesting is typically when we think of apoptosis, it's not immunogenic because 
you know, normally that's how cells die. When we don't want it, it's the body's natural mm. way to eliminate cells without causing an immune response. Mm. Clearly they do show an immune response. So it's a little bit different than what we traditionally think of. And it seems like they may have a couple of different things going on, uh, not just the apoptosis. Uh, they definitely do show that they have immune activation. But um, yeah, that was something that um, yeah. needs to be looked into a little bit further. You know, how tumors evade that kind of immune surveillance, right? I mean, that's, you know, for our bodies have evolved to detect tumors and attack them. And, you know, tumors like this in particular can evade that. They're, um, they kind of outrun uh, the immune response in a way. So, so that was one of the things that was really exciting here. It's not just about that thermal ablation, but, you know, seeing that infiltration into the tumor of CD4 positive, CD8 positive um, T cells, getting that immune response. Even the, the gene expression work as well, showing, you know, elevated expression of genes that are involved in those, you know, antigen presentation and, and cytokine reception their interactions um, was was really exciting and for me uh, seeing the effect on tumor size as well on the kind of flank tumor on the on the non-treated side was you know really indicative of a, of a strong immune response that's then working so you know uh, one of the hallmarks of cancer uh, when they publish that paper is that you have to have immune they have to evade the immune system we definitely see more tumors if we go back to the AIDS epidemic there was tumors that we never see like sarcoma things like that we lose our CD4 cells. Yeah. Uh, in our transplant patients who we immunosuppress uh, so they don't reject their organs, we see uh, increased uh, cancers, uh, oftentimes skin cancers, and some of these Im uh, cancers that we know are classic of immunosuppression. And so, and there's a variety of ways in which cancers can evade the immune system. They can hide their HLA antigens so that the immune system just can't recognize them. They can uh, express immune checkpoints to press an immune response, and they can make a poor metabolic environment, if you have increased lactic acid and poor metabolomics, you won't have, the T cells won't be able to survive in that uh, tumor microenvironment. There's a lot of work going on in that space. There's multiple, yeah. there could be immune suppressive cells releasing suppressive cytokines. So yeah, uh, definitely. We've made a lot, we have made large gains. Uh, immunotherapy now is being used to treat many, many different types of cancer and breast cancer. We're still working on it compared to others, but uh, it's changed our treatment for melanoma, skin cancers, renal cancer. And so um, definitely we're making yeah. great strides. Um, well, immune checkpoint inhibitors are quite interesting in themselves. They're almost like an ID that the cell has to um, you know, show to the immune, <laughs> the immune cells as they, as they go past. It's like, yeah, I should be here. So um, don't destroy me. So things that really need to be done in order to target these cells is to expose the um, oncogenic antigens. This paper in itself seems to be focusing on this novel version of the HIFU. So the thermal um, high-intensity focus ultrasound, it seems that around this there are some papers that focus on the use of this treatment for prostate cancer, but less so in other cancers. And um, this is an animal model paper, so we should really be aware of this. So there is clinical data for the thermal version of the HIFU, but not so much the mechanical version of the HIFU to be able to open these cells and increase the number of dendritic cells um, and just generally stimulate the immune response. So this seems to be more of a proof of concept paper than something that is yeah. direct, directly applicable to the clinic. Even the tumor models they use, those of us who do preclinical animal research know that they are a little bit immunogenic. And they also added HER2 antigen 
a human HER2 antigen, which will cause an immune response in a mouse. They're growing tumors, so and definitely doesn't invalidate their studies at all. But these tumors are not going to behave like human breast cancer tumors. They are going to be more immunogenic. Some of that distant tumor response that uh, we are seeing is something indicative of this uh, cell line and the immunogenicity in less immunogenic cell lines. The one other thing I was curious about in the first figure, they compare no treatment, thermal HIFU, and mechanical HIFU treatment alone. And it didn't seem like the thermal HIFU really did much. To me, it was unexpected because if you heat a tumor properly to 60 degrees C and the whole tumor, there should be a primary tumor effect even if there isn't a distant one. And I know in their methods they talked about them not treating necessarily the whole tumor with that uh, dose, but um, that was something that was curious for me, just because I think the point they were making is that this combination works well, but they have a pretty significant difference in just the treatment alone, uh, even without the combination. You know, one of the key novel aspects of the methodology is the, this mechanical shear stress through the uh, acoustic cavitation, um, and the temperature was a lot lower. I think it was 42 degrees compared with 60 degrees with the thermal ablation. So you've got, you know, a, a necrotic response as opposed to this trying to stimulate this immune response and, and get some separation as well between the cells and the tumor. I think one of the reasons they may have chose it, and I think it was appropriate maybe for one of their models, is uh, it's an antigen, so they might be able to look at HER2 reactive T cells. But I agree with you. Um, uh, We do have a lot of HER2 treatments, actually, and our uh, outcomes for HER2 positive disease are much better on the clinical side. Actually, now that we have dual HER2 treatments, we're seeing really strong responses. We have have really good clinical therapies uh, to target HER2. I mean, obviously, there's still patients who uh, escape and uh, we need to still work on it, but um, compared to triple negative, and, and the additional yeah. point is that, at, again, if the, it may have been kind of interesting if they added mouse HER2, that would not cause, rather than yeah. human HER2, a mouse cell line, and, yeah. especially when you're doing immunotherapy type yeah. studies. So the synergy between the, the two treatments here is is fascinating, right? I think with anti-PD-1, um, we saw 26% kind of response compared with uh, 52 when that was combined with the mechanical uh, HIFU treatment. So there's there's great synergy there and, and the combination of the two is really powerful. Um, one of the alternatives I have seen in the literature is uh, using this kind of immune checkpoint therapy uh, in combination with chemotherapy. So chemotherapy is uh, used often. Um, it depends on the chemo agent. I think the difference with chemotherapy is it's a systemic therapy. It will go to all sites. Uh, probably uh, something that maybe uh, you better to consider for someone with metastatic disease. I think that something very similar to this that I often do, uh, I'm a practicing radiation oncologist uh, and my lab research is radiation immunotherapy. So we often use radiation. Uh, we cause immunogenic cell death to a local area and then uh, combine it with checkpoint blockade. It's something that we're doing on the clinical side and then uh, it's been in multiple clinical trials, as well as there's been multiple preclinical studies showing that there's also this kind of synergistic effect where you cause damage to cells with a local therapy and that makes uh, immuno, uh, immune checkpoint blockade better. I'd love to hear Anthony's opinion on this, but just one quick question on that then, just while we're talking about that uh, that radiation therapy and that being localized, do, do you see a case for then having a, a kind of three-pronged attack with your radiation therapy, immune checkpoint, and maybe something like the mechanical uh, HIFU as well? Um, potentially. I think like we need to study all of these and we need data in humans. Right. I think one of the things that 
we don't have a ton of haifu in the clinic that I'm aware of right now. It's a good salvage mm -hmm. treatment when uh, radiation, surgery, other local therapies are not available. That's kind of been, it's where I've seen it in the clinical space. It's been used for prostate and some other diseases. But I think it has the potential for a much bigger role, but we need clinical data. So uh, it's sure. used. Excellent. But yeah, there's going to be uh, patients who they can't have any of these other treatments. It might be hard to give radiation again. It could potentially work uh, in a different way. Uh, and uh, definitely that's something that we need to look at on the preclinical research side. And potentially if we show good results, translate that into a clinical trial. But So yeah, one of my um, perspectives on this was that um, if you were looking at chemotherapeutic agents along with immune, immune checkpoint blockers, that tends to act on a much more systemic level. Whereas uh, the radiation therapy, that's a lot more invasive and causes uh, more damage to the DNA than um, something like this, uh, even the, therm the thermal HIFU treatment. So it seems to be that one of the main focuses of this paper is to establish that the um, mechanical HIFU is, um, has efficacy in producing this immune response you know, increases the number of dendritic cells in the area. It might have some more um, effect on the um, tumor-associated macrophages in that in those areas as well, and then impacting the tumor microenvironment. So, rather than show, showing um, something that is functionally systemic from the start, it's a way to um, stimulate an immune response to get a sort of minimally invasive reaction from the whole system. So it would act, start locally to disrupt the tumor and then produce an immune response that could potentially take out other metastatic um, elements of this tumor yeah. on a systemic level later on. But one thing that was mentioned within the paper is that it's for um, it, it has limited efficacy with um, larger tumors. So if there's a smaller tumor that can be that can be disrupted and then taken out on a systemic level by an immune response, that could be one of the potential ways to uh, to deal with any any potential met metastases uh, in the future rather than in a minimally invasive way, rather than doing some damage using the radiotherapy. I think we need to be careful with uh, abscopal yeah. responses. I think this has been a holy grail that uh, radiation oncologists, mm. local therapy people have been looking at for the last 10 years. Um, and most of the clinical studies have been negative in humans, mm. even with mouse data, multiple mouse data, uh, data showing that it works in mouse models. Mm. So it's really fallen out of favor uh, with mm. clinicians because it's something that is a phenomenon that we see in mice and rarely in human beings. I'm not saying it never happens in human beings. We do see it, but it's mm. not something we can reproduce in any predictable manner, at least to date. And uh, looking at the tumor models that they used in this study, these are some of the same tumor models that we, with radiation or other therapies, that we show abscopal responses that don't necessarily correlate to what we see in uh, patients. But hmm. this uh, idea of we treat a local site and then get a distant response is something that that we see in mice, basically, and it really uh, we have not, uh, despite multiple trials, been able to show in our, our patients. You've got the tumor growth um, is decreasing. You've got this immune response. You've got the response in the, the flank tumor as well, so where the immune cells are, are actually operating and away from the treated site. But yeah, we, we need to then translate that into uh, into humans, and, and that will obviously be the next the next step to look at. But the nice thing about this particular treatment is, um, I guess, the, the non-invasive and lower toxicity aspects of it, you know, compared with, for example, in particular, um, chemotherapy, 
which, as you said before, is, is um, systemic. Um, what, what do you think, Dr. Patel, would be some of the, the challenges to, to making that next yeah, step? Um, one of the things that we've been doing for local therapies is doing neoadjuvant studies. So uh, at least for radiation, what we're doing is we're bringing up radiation and immunotherapy before surgery, and then we can see the response in our patients. And especially uh, the, one of the trials that we have open at my center is for skin cancer, where we give immuno—it's not radiation therapy, but it's uh, immunotherapy up front, where we do surgery afterwards, and we can see this response in breast cancer potentially. Let's say you have a patient with a triple negative breast cancer. Potentially, you can give this type of treatment prior to surgery, uh, yeah. then assess when you take it out. Did this generate a good immune response? It's not really. And when I talk about metastatic disease, uh, we do have some data suggesting that it can prevent distant micrometastatic disease from developing, even if it won't hit large tumors like that we can see on imaging. So those are two different things. Yeah. And that's still a clinically benefit. If you generate this immune response that can prevent these little micromets from developing everywhere, I think there's maybe some depth issue with ultrasound and sound waves. A surface tumor in a mouse may be a little bit different than a human patient who may have a more deep tumor. So you probably have to uh, figure out a trial where we can focus the HIFU properly and maybe not go through bone. So maybe like a tumor inside a breast or something like that may make sense. Presumably early diagnosis is still going to remain key and, and really critical to the success of any treatment, particularly in this type of cancer. But yeah, the, the other one is more of a uh, an engineering problem. So Anthony, combinatorial strategy that we talked about is, is really powerful, but um, there's lots now happening with the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, what do you think some of the trends are in that area? The concept of using um, cancer vaccines, where you would um, take out immune cells from a patient, stimulate them to essentially produce an immune response against a, um, a particular presenting antigen on a cancer, and then inject them to elicit an immune response that way. So potentially using this HIFU, um, or HIFU, um, the mechanical version of this, which in increases the immune response anyway, it, it could actually be a way to um, enhance the efficacy of such kind of um, cancer vaccine treatment in, again, in a more minimal, minimally invasive way. I'm not really sure how cancer vaccines um, are paired with other treatment like, um, you know, surgical resection of tumors and uh, radiotherapy, but this could be one potential avenue for the way to enhance other immunotherapies like cancer vaccine. Yeah, Dr. Patel. Yeah. Um, uh, as well? So uh, to your first question, the immune checkpoint, you know, we've been focused on the clinical side on PD-1, PD-L1, but really the data on checkpoints has expanded a lot more. Now we're using a lot of LAG3 inhibitors, TIM3, TIGIT, VISTA. Really the whole field of checkpoints has really expanded beyond the ones that we're using in the clinic right now uh, and where you are uh, doing yeah. combination with cytokines and other things as well. Uh, those are in trials that, uh, you know, that we have patients on. To Anthony, uh, Dr. Swain's point, one of the things I, as you were talking, that I found to be um, one of the problems with these cellular therapies is you have a fibrotic core or you have an inhospitable tumor microenvironment where immune cells can't infiltrate. And one of the things that might, I don't know if this paper specifically focused on it, but they did have some data showing increased T-cell infiltration. Could be that if you disrupt this TME so that this fibrosis or uh, this inhospitable environment is broken up, uh, loosened up potentially, uh, that maybe yeah. immune cells can infiltrate more. They definitely did show they have more immune cell infiltrate. I think uh, it wasn't necessarily the whole focus of this paper, 
but that might be something to look at compared to other modalities. Uh, can they break up these areas of tumor so that immune cells can get in and attack? Yeah, completely agree. And and it was actually, yeah, it was quite a strong um, immune response that we saw with infiltration of CD4 positive, CD8 positive T cells, but also, you know, cytokines like um, interferon gamma uh, were all up within that tumor microenvironment. So yeah, whether, whether that's down to that shear stress that we talked about before, just, just sort of giving a bit of separation, pulling apart some of the tissue, breaking it up a bit to, to get the immune cells in there uh, or not will be really interesting to see, but um, certainly look very promising in, in combination, right? How is that field evolving? What are some of the emerging treatment modalities that we're seeing um, that are maybe non-invasive or a lot less invasive than what we've yeah. seen in the past? So um, unfortunately, I don't think we've come up with a cancer treatment that has zero side effects. I tell that to all my patients, but we want to do, everything has to have a benefit and we want to minimize the cost or risk to our patients. Um, and that's a conversation, uh, anytime you're in a clinical situation talking about a treatment with a patient, that's the conversation I have with them. So, and we'll take more risks when we can cure patients to cancer and maybe a little bit less risk when the, we're not gonna be able to offer much benefit and we just wanna palliate uh, some symptoms. I don't know if we have a true non-invasive, non-side effect therapy. Uh, I, I, I remain doubtful that even mechanical shearing has zero side effects. Uh, it's sometimes hard to detect that in mice just because they can't speak and complain. Even if I radiate a mouse tumor, you're not going to see most side effects because the mouse can't uh, speak to them if I'm just radiating that mouse tumor. But it does seem like this may have less uh, potential for toxicity. I, I still think there's going to be some, but it's going to be uh, uh, potentially less than a thermal ablation. I, I would be curious to see how it would compare to radiation uh, because radiation doesn't, uh, it does cause DNA damage. But I imagine that this mechanical mechanical stimulation they're causing does kill cells. We see that from the treatment alone without checkpoints. So I'm not going to say it kills zero cells. And there's yeah. probably some likelihood it'll kill some normal tissue cells too through sharing. Uh, we just don't know the level and how fine they can control it. At least I couldn't gather it from this study. And systemic therapies are sometimes much harder to tolerate, especially when we're talking about cytotoxic chemo. No, and, and so it'll be really exciting to see how that emerges. So when, when most people think of uh, ultrasound, they're probably thinking of it in a diagnostic sense or, or going along you know, to, to see a, a fetus, um, for example. Actually, more and more it is being used as, as a therapy as well, and uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves in the kind of oncology space. So, yeah, Anthony, did you have any thoughts on the um, non-invasive modalities? or less invasive modalities. Yeah, I, I was just about to say that probably non-invasive is a little bit optimistic because uh, anytime you're gonna be doing any of these therapies, um, it, it's going to be causing some kind of damage. I, I cannot think of any sort of non-invasive therapy at all. You know, even if you uh, if you have a headache and you take a paracetamol, there's some kind of um, trade-off for that in the sense that the paracetamol itself could cause some damage to your liver in certain circumstances. Right. So there's always going to be some level of invasion whenever you're doing any of these therapies. I do think one of the main focuses of this paper was to present this um, mechanical high-intensity focus ultrasound as a less invasive alternative to the um, thermal high-intensity focused ultrasound. But it's a little bit optimistic, and with it still just being a mouse model, it is one of the, the, the big problems. Um, you know, Unless you get the data in the clinic, it's very difficult to pronounce any sort of efficacy that, w- within humans, because as Dr. Purcell said, you know, mice can't complain what, what you do to them. It's also the, the fact that the size of the mouse body as well is completely different to... Um, 
the, yeah. the kind of um, scale that you're going to be dealing with a human. Anything's going to be more invasive. You, if, you, if you're looking at like the size of a mouse leg, for example, which is one of the areas which they're focused on within this paper, that is a completely different scale to like either a, a tumor in a human femur, for example. You're right. That, and that, the, that brings um, us back to what Dr. Patel was saying before about deep uh, tumors as well and, and the ability mm. of high food to be able to reach those. They use breast cancer models where we can do an orthotopic injection into the right. breast mammary gland. And I did find it odd that they didn't do that for theirs. They did an intradermal injection in the leg. And um, yeah. it's a little bit yeah. different than most people because it's the mammary glands are pretty near the surface and it's not a hard procedure to do. And I would expect Haifu would still be able to get it, but I intradermal is like right on the surface. It's in the yeah, super most right. superficial layer of the skin, so that does make me wonder: can we even go a little bit deep? I, I think it can, but it would have been nice to see that. Maybe that's a next step. Maybe that's something they're working on at the moment to try in different um, different locations and and see how deep the high food can penetrate. But that's a that's actually a really good point. Yeah. So one of the challenges for researchers, uh, and and here we had a, a group that sort of split between Japan and the US is, is communication of results. And there's a lot of results here, a lot of data, and it's quite a, it's a complex field, I would say. So, you know, Anthony, what were your thoughts around the, the science communication here, the writing style, how the authors uh, were able to communicate these results? I thought it was, um, you know, pretty good and pretty log logical. I thought some of the results, uh, some of the sections of the results seem to um, delve a little bit more into the discussion section. Pro probably I, I would have written itself as like, um, but it does seem quite logical in the sense of that we, we tested this and based on these results, there's a little bit of interpretation of the results, but th that's used to provide logic to move on to Correct. the next step. So storytelling. But, yeah. yeah, it's very it's very good in terms of the sto the storytelling of that. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that I found within this paper itself was that the limitate. Um, in general, I thought it was quite um, interesting. Um, some of the um, like the title, I thought. Uh, the, the title of this paper is Combination of Ultrasound-Based Mechanical Disruption of Tumor with Immune Checkpoint Blockade Modifies Tumor Microenvironment and Augments Systemic Anti-Tumor Immunity. I'm wondering if there was any choice, you know, specific choice for using the, the single tumor rather than tumors in general. You're, you're right, and you're right to point out the the extensive discussion of limitations. And of course, there are many mm. limitations and many questions that come out of this, which I think mm. the three of us have already um, covered a, a lot of. But yeah, there is a nice story that they generate here. And you're right, there's some interpretation included in results, but actually part mm. of that is just to present a logic for the next part of the story, mm. uh, which which I thought they did quite nicely, actually, yeah. Now, doc, Dr. Mm. Patel, you may be a little biased here, being um, an editor on the journal, but uh, what were your thoughts around the, the writing, the storytelling? No, I thought the writing was great. Uh, storytelling was good. Yeah. On the, the science and uh, things like that, I would have, I, I, I do think they were probably missing a few controls that I would have liked to see and if I was reviewing it. They do a lot of comparisons between right. untreated and the mechanical haifu, but uh, at least in the figures, it looked like there was limited direct comparisons, at least for many of the now. So I'm not saying for, they do have some, but between the uh, thermal versus yeah. mechanical, which is, I think, the main point of the paper, which I, I was a reviewer, I would have asked for them to show that data. Obviously, it would be a little bit harder to show significance because I do think the thermals doing a little bit, even if it's not doing it's mechanical. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah. 
I, I really agree with this point, actually. It did seem like there were some sections of the paper where I was just yeah. looking at it going, where's the thermal? <laughs> I think they moved on quite quickly to show some initial results comparing the thermal with the mechanical Haifu, but then they move on to really the next set of results are comparing mechanical Haifu alone with the combinatorial treatment. So I think I think that's the crux, the, the thrust of what they're showing in the results is how the combination of these uh, is actually really good, but you're right. You know, they could have actually shown uh, a bit more uh, in terms of what's happening with thermal only uh, for some of those later results. Yeah, especially if, if they want to really validate that it's better than thermal. So, and and as an editor, you say you didn't you didn't review this, but what sort of qualities do you look for then in a paper when um, when considering whether to accept or or uh, whether it's of yeah, interest. Yeah, so I don't know if I know the answer to this because I, I get as many papers re uh, rejected as accepted. It's a difficult thing for all of us, uh, <laughs> whether you're an editor or not. Right. But uh, I think that the rigor of the science is a big thing. Uh, I definitely look for uh, having multiple tumor models, especially if you want to publish in a higher impact journal, and they have uh, more than one different tumor model uh, that they used here. Well, uh, Sometimes uh, I look for multiple replicates. I think in this paper, they I wasn't sure if they had more than one replicate, but especially when you're looking at immune studies, uh, those of right. us who've done mouse studies, it's not, you may get a result once, but you may not get it the second time. So reproducibility is uh, yeah, not just right. having statistical power, but having reproducibility really helps. Uh, I like to see that. And it's what you can do is do maybe, instead of powering your study and doing everything at once, you can do two replicates so you show reproducibility and still have that power for your survival analysis across your replicate. That's uh, a good point, actually. Uh, yeah. I think they have really nice uh, single cell analysis and uh, complex techniques, which is obviously helpful. We like to see lots of data uh, and uh, the analysis uh, they did. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, don't skip controls because some reviewer, uh, if you get a reviewer like me, is going to ask them for them. And then, you know, because, you know, when we read a paper, we have that question, like, what, what would these two things look like? And then I guess the last thing is, at least when I've tried to publish in high impact journals, uh, I think the reviewers, for the most part, are trying to help you. They're interested in seeing the best product come out. Uh, I tend to follow their advice. And if they ask me to do more studies, I do more studies. There's some people who push back and be like, no, I did enough. Uh, obviously, you yeah. can't do some things with patients that you can't run a new clinical trial. But if it's doing a few extra mouse studies, it's usually worth doing because your data will be more rigorous and more robust. And I know um, when I had my big paper from my uh, postdoc, uh, I spent a year doing these studies and the final product turned out much better. Uh, it made my data yeah. much more presentable. 100% agree. And that's, um, I, I think, for some of our listeners, they might be thinking, well, it's, it's you know, going to take extra time and it's a, a real hassle having to do this. But that's a key point that, you know, the reviewers are there to help you uh, make your paper, make your study better, stronger, and, and really stand up to scrutiny once it's, um, once it's published. So, yeah, absolutely Brilliant point. Um, and, and Dr. Swain, you've, um, you're very experienced now with uh, supporting authors and, and working with authors to get their work published in high impact journals. So, you know, any, any final thoughts around in the context of this paper, what, 
qualities you think are particularly important? Uh, well, the most of the studies that I work on tend to be uh, clinical trials, whereas this is a, um, a non-clinical trial. So you need to make sure that you have all of the um, a well-fleshed-out um, methodology section, which I think they did really well in this paper. It's it's very detailed in terms of all the methodology they use, the flow cytometry, the ELISA, the um, single-cell RNA anal- analysis. Yeah. Very thorough. Mm. The paper uh, utilized a, a lot of uh, supplementary materials as well. So it's clear that there is a huge amount of data within this paper, but the um, the authors also um, utilized the facility of the, the journal to uh, add um, supplementary data, which, which was excellent. They really did um, cover their bases, even if it wasn't within the main paper. The online supplementary material is incredibly extensive. One thing that I potentially would have... Um, advise the um, authors to, well, it, it got pu- published um, w- without this uh, minor criticism that I have. Um, the, the title itself, it doesn't man- mention anything to do with uh, breast cancer. And I think that it potentially would have uh, added more to the specificity of uh, the, pa- the paper to, to mention that this is a breast cancer model. It clearly doesn't um, di- didn't impact the paper getting published in any way, shape or form. And um, yeah, be- beyond that, there's not really much that could be added to it uh, other than some potential other minor visual things that I would have potentially added, like um, matching the um, way that the graphs present the um, non-treatment, the uh, thermal HIFU and the mechanical HIFU. I would have used the same symbol in each particular graph, but beyond that, it's very nitpicky what I have to say about it. Lots of work, lots of figures, including lots of supplementary figures. Um, You're right about the the imagery. Um, For me, I I would have really liked to see a uh, a schematic or um, almost like a graphical abstract, but some kind of schematic that pulls everything together to tell the story because there's a lot of results they're very spread out and it's complex and um being able to boil that down into a single figure that just captures what this paper is about, I think would have been really nice. And, you know, a lot of journals now publish graphical abstracts, and um, I, mm. I don't know if this is, is one of them, but they're becoming more more popular and more and more used as a, as a vehicle for communication. Apart from that, I, I thought it was very thorough and a really nice piece of work. Any final thoughts, Dr. Patel? No, uh, again, I, I think this is uh, definitely an interesting con- uh, concept. Uh, it'd be, I'd, lo- I'd love to see more uh, work come out of this. I, I, I do think this uh, yeah. has some potential uh, application for breast cancer, but it could apply to other cancers as well. And uh, it would be, uh, especially that mechanical disruption of Absolutely. the tumor microenvironment. A lot of the solid, dense tumors that we have, uh, the classic is pancreatic cancer, uh, but there's others as well. Can we... Uh, limit or can we break that up to allow immune cell infiltrates? I think that would be a great potential follow-up study to look at this type of technique because that that is a really big problem. And you can, instead of doing checkpoint blockade, uh, that's one of the problems that we see for these cellular therapies like CAR T-cells that don't work as well in solid tumors. And so you can directly investigate, can, if I break up this tumor, can I let uh, immune cells in? But no, I, I think it was a study with a lot of uh, Absolutely. interesting data, future directions that could be invested. Yeah, yeah I, I really look forward to seeing where this um, this type of treatment goes next. And, and you're right, implications not only for breast cancer, but for, for a ton of different um, cancer types. So, uh, Dr. Swain, any final thoughts there? Um, no, excellent paper. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to seeing more of these things in the future preferably in a clinical model rather than a transgenic mouse model. Yeah. 
asking the right questions is key to making breakthrough scientific discoveries and advancements. And as the research landscape grows more competitive and complex, finding innovative, interdisciplinary research ideas is more important than ever. The right questions address the most important issues in your field and make it easier for you to conduct high-impact research. At Edons, we can help you to generate these questions, outline a potential study, and present it in a way that helps you to secure funding and quickly make your idea a reality. Our team of creative experts will conduct a deep analysis of the research landscape in your field, identifying gaps, finding the right questions, and helping you find inspiration for your next project. We can also help develop innovative study concepts, a synopsis, and a full protocol, so you'll have a study that is very likely to be accepted by a high-impact, peer-reviewed publication. Let Edons help you to make informed decisions, save time, money, and resources, so that you can advance your field and make the world a better place.